Chapter Fourteen of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Fourteen, A Suburban Fishery. I would cultivate the devil himself if he had any trout fishing within twenty miles of London," said my friend with a note of regret in his voice whether for the fishing or for the impossibility of utilising his undoubted social talent, I am not prepared to say. The speech was perhaps a little rash. It is recorded on good authority that men have been taken at their word by the personality in question, to their subsequent regret. But there are doubtless not a few bold anglers in London who would not hesitate to echo it even if they were considerably less safe in doing so than they are. But the supposition belongs to the realm of vain speculation, for the devil himself would have his own task in acquiring the fishing in the first place, and in the second, supposing that he performed it, one may safely assert that he would firmly refuse to be cultivated even for the sake of also acquiring a valuable soul." soul is a valuable thing, and my friend's, for all his freedom of speech, is worth more than most. But it is not so valuable as all that. Trout-fishing within twenty miles of London belongs to the world of dreams, where are also the elixir of life, the philosopher's stone, the rainbow's end, and other unrealizable delights, and the common man whose dreams do not come true, must wake out of sleep and travel into a far country before he can get his fishing. Trout and trout-fishing are not necessarily the same thing, or I should not speak thus from the depths. There are trout within twenty miles of London. There are trout in London. A noble lord captured one with a fly quite recently from the lake in Buckingham Palace grounds. He even rose others— or, as one of our less highly-priced newspapers naively put it, others made several bites at his fly. This was a rainbow trout, a fact which adds its small weight of significance to the evidence of the Americanization of London. There are rainbow trout also in the serpentine. But while we view with pleasure the presence of rainbow trout in our lakes, we do not fish for them and if we did, we could not call it trout-fishing. Trout-fishing is too idyllic a thing to be imaginable within sight or sound of the great city. When my friend spoke his brave words, he meant it, of course, to be understood that the trout-fishing in question was to be situate in a lovely valley. The meandering stream was to flow through lush pastures, over a bed of gold and gravel, with ancient willows shading its deeper pools from the noontide glare. Wide-spreading oaks were to stand sentinel over the peaceful scene, and not so near to the water as to cause risk to flies. The brook, it was to be little more, was to contain nothing but trout and good trout food. And lastly, there was to be no sight or sound of human industry or pleasure save one thatched and timbered cottage set away in a bower of roses by the lane where the keeper was to dwell 
and give the angler tea at four of the clock. It is only fair to mention these things, lest the reader might think a soul was offered, so to speak, for a mess of pottage. Then again, there are trout in several streams quite close to London. There are trout in our suburban fishery, quite a number of them. But even those of us who are fondest of our stretch of river do not call it trout-fishing. We merely admit, on being pressed, that there are trout in it. We even admit that they are sometimes to be caught, but we are reticent as to the manner of the catching. And yet it is hard to see why we should be, for our trout are highly civilized, and seen in all arts and cunning, as is but natural when you reflect that they live within fifteen miles of the Marble Arch, know what a London fog looks like, and have recently made the acquaintance of the electric tram-car. Fish living thus in the heart of things must not be placed in the same category as the spotted rustics of Devonshire or Wales, nor are they to be guiled with rustic lures. Let our keeper, who is quite without shame, put the matter boldly and plainly for the reader's enlightenment. "'You take my advice, sir,' he says, "'and give him something big, something that will fall in with a splash.' Nor is big with him a mere euphemism, implying moderately large. Rather it is a meiosis, concealing enormous. A two-inch salmon-fly is what he alludes to. Its pattern is indifferent to him so it shines very brightly and falls into the water with aristophanic vehemence. And though a few of us spend long and patient days in floating each approved inconsiderable gnat, delicately poised on its hackles over the unappreciative nose of Black Henry or Spotted Charlie, for the most part we agree with the keeper and so it is our constant endeavour to find the latest and largest thing in salmon-flies, in the hope that novelty may meet with appreciation. There was once a red-letter day on which one of our fraternity caught no less than five trout, and I came upon him as he was landing the fifth. I begged that I might be permitted to inspect his fly— and found myself face to face with the unknown in all its magnificence. It had no wings, it had no hackle, it was just a resplendent glorious body of dazzling beads and silver and gold. My jock Scott rivalled it about as much as a partridge rivals a golden pheasant, and I went on my course saddened and caught nothing. But that brother understood the nature of our trout. The reader may have noticed a little while ago that I mentioned two of them by name, but he must not be surprised. All our more considerable fish have their names, though we cannot exactly say that they are answer to them. Black Henry, for example, is a kind of landmark, or shall I say watermark, and he lies always on a little patch of gravel between the weeds at the tail of the principal shallow of our water. By Black Henry you can tell whether the river is high or low. If it is high, he will be a mere shadow on the bottom, 
If it is low, you can count his spots, although there are other ways of ascertaining the state of the river, of course. Black Henry also marks the lowest point of the shallow where you may expect to find a trout, just as Long William up by the bridge marks the highest, the end of our water, in fact. Black Henry is somewhere between four and five pounds in weight. Long William is much heavier, and is indeed the largest trout we have in this part of the stream. He may be eight pounds, or even more. Between the two points marked by these two fish, you shall see some energetic angling done on any Saturday afternoon in full season. "'Bless me!' you may exclaim with Viator. "'What salmon-fishing is here? Are we not in Wales?' But you will soon become used to it, and after a while you will even enter into the spirit of the game. Let me exemplify. On the opposite bank there is an old willow which leans across the stream farther than the others and forms an eddy. It is a long cast, twenty-two yards at least, but we use here powerful rods and heavy lines, and it is no effort to pitch the silver doctor into the eddy. It falls with as great a tumult as the keeper's soul could desire, and then works its erratic way back towards our own bank. If you look carefully, and if the water is clear and the sun shining, you can see a long shadow lying a yard or two below the eddy and rather nearer our bank. That is Spotted Charlie, a favourite of mine. My object is to rouse his imagination and to stimulate him to rapid action by the sight of the impossible fly's jerky attractions. Spotted Charlie weighs three or four pounds and is invariably polite, which is why I love him. There you may observe how he follows the silver doctor just to show that he is not insensible of the compliment. A yard or two in attendance and he conceives that duty has been accomplished. Then he returns to his own place with dignity. He will go through the same formality with any other monstrous fly you like to throw at him, but at the end of it all his own place will not miss him. Yet it is just possible that on some warm evening, in that brief interval between dusk and dark, he might attempt to destroy the silver-bodied alien that has invaded his feeding-ground, for I take it a trout only seizes a salmon-fly out of ferocity, then his position would be vacant for a smaller brother. A few yards higher up lies Didymus, another big fish. He, as his name implies, is of a deeply suspicious nature, and the advent of an artificial fly great or small, is enough to cause his hurried departure. For this I am myself probably to blame. Two years ago I actually hooked him with a dry fly, a wickham, at which he rose with the readiness of any troutling. How he disposed of the fly and the yards of line of which he robbed me, I know not, but the incident is probably fresh in his memory. About fifty yards above him, a narrow islet running downstream from the bridge divides the river into two channels. 
there are usually several trout round the point of this islet, and sometimes one may be caught here. A year or so since there was a nice fish named Robert, who lay always on the strip of golden sand between the two streams. He was much sought after by the fraternity, because he was so plain to be seen. But he never rose at anything. On a day a fisherman angled for him indignantly for two hours, and in his determination to succeed was perhaps over-energetic, for he lost several flies in the bush that grows at the islet's tip. Finally, as his fifth fly took fast hold of a twig, he lost patience. Taking off shoes and stockings, he waded out to recover his property. To his surprise, the fish did not resent his approach, in fact, took no notice of him, and I blush to record that the irate brother took mean advantage and kicked Robert very hard. So Robert disappeared, it is thought, for good. But I suspect him of living in anonymous seclusion on a shallow lower down. Not very long ago a considerable sensation was caused by the intelligence that one of the brethren had hooked Long William with some gaudy fly, and had even played him for several minutes. The fish, of course, got off, as a trout of that size generally does, but the event has stimulated the fraternity to fresh exertions, and it is hoped that some day, not this year perhaps, or even next, but still some day, he may be hooked again. However, we never really expect to catch one of these patriarchs. A brace of trout of a pound and a half each is the limit of our hope, and even to that we attain but seldom. Under the arches of the bridge do we have the best chance. There the stream ripples nicely, and the trout sometimes rise as trout should. Above the bridge lies El Dorado, the unattainable. It is, in fact, a large mill-pool, where is a splendid mill-race gushing out over bottomless depths, which gradually shelve up to a wide shallow. Upon this forbidden pool the brethren often cast a discerning eye, and speculate on the probable weight of the trout that must inhabit it nor do they hesitate to speak of ten and even twelve pounders, and sometimes as they lean upon the bridge and give rein to their fancy you may hear darkling hints as to what they would catch could they only find themselves standing in their waders on the shelf of that great tumultuous hole with their trusty spinning-rod in hand and of course the card of invitation in pocket. But prophecy is somewhat akin to faith, as explained to us by the Sunday scholar. It consists principally in asserting what will happen in case of certain contingencies that will not arise. In this instance the contingency is the card of invitation, for the mill-pond is very strictly, and, let me add, properly preserved. This is perhaps as well for it saves the brethren from the possible fate of the prophet convicted of falsity, and at the same time allows them the pleasures of imagination without the cold restraint of hard fact. Notwithstanding all this, I firmly believe that there are ten and even twelve-pounders in the mill-pool, and, 
but we will leave the subject and go downstream. I am but human myself. So far I have spoken only of the trout in our river, but the other fish claim attention quite as deservedly. The stream used to be noted for the size and number of its dace. Fish of three-quarters of a pound were common, and pounders were not unknown. The numbers have not fallen off. On a fine, warm evening you may see them rising all over the river, but the average size of those caught has curiously deteriorated. It is an exceptional thing now to catch a dace of half a pound. I hear that this phenomenon has been observed in other parts of the river as well as ours, but what the reason of it may be it is difficult to surmise. Possibly it is due to the decreasing volume of the stream, which, like all streams near London, is gradually shrinking in obedience to the insatiable demands of the water companies. But this explanation is not wholly satisfactory. The river is still quite considerable, and affords abundance of fish food, and the quality of its water, which at one time is very doubtful, has been steadily improving in recent years. Another explanation, which seems more likely, is that the fish are too numerous. A laudable custom prevails amongst the brethren. In fact, it is more than custom. It is down in black and white as law. Of returning all fish under certain specified sizes, and with admirable observance of the rules of what is sportsmanlike, the brethren interpret this law generously, retaining but very few of the fish they catch, and returning to their element many that weigh much more than the prescribed number of ounces. This may have resulted in overstocking. It is well known that an overstocked trout stream is in worse case than an understocked one, and the signs of it are unmistakable. But with the coarse fish it is more difficult to tell. Certainly the condition of our dace has not fallen off. They are as game for their size as trout, and when they are in the mood give very pretty sport to the fly-rod. Immediately below the shallow begin the roach swims, which vary from three to five feet in depth. The brethren who fish for roach sometimes have exciting experiences. One day I came upon a brother sitting on his stool with an air of patient expectation, the tip of his roach pole quivering, and his line running slowly but steadily out. He had, he explained, hooked something ten minutes before which had so far defined his efforts, insomuch as he was fishing with a cast of a single hair and could not employ force. He supposed it to be a big bream. It was about forty yards away now, but he was not without hopes of landing it. Even as he spoke, a great turmoil in the water upstream confirmed his views as to the distance the fish had travelled, and then he managed to turn it and gradually recover his line. Some time later I had the pleasure of landing the bream for him, a great fish of nearly five pounds. It was a real triumph to have taken it on a single hair line. On another occasion I found a brother lamenting a misfortune that had overtaken him. A large bream, it appeared, had departed with a large portion of his tackle, including the float. 
I condoled with him, and went on my way up to the shallow where I intended to fly fish for dace. Just before I reached it, about a hundred yards above the spot where the brother was sitting, I perceived something which looked like a float. In fact, it was a float. It was proceeding rapidly upstream, and the fish was evidently still on. Without the least expectation of accomplishing a miracle, I cast the fly at the lost property, and the miracle happened. The fly took hold of the other line somewhere, and I found myself vicariously fast in a fish, which immediately quickened its pace as it felt the added strain. It sped upstream, and I sped after it, fearing every moment that the fly would lose its hold. Presently the fish jumped, and so declared that it was no bream. However, it had doubtless been weakened by its previous encounter, and before long I got it into the net, a trout of about three pounds. The fly, I found, had fastened on the ring of the float. Then arose the question. Had the fish been caught with the fly, or with the gentles that the brother had been using? In the one case it was legitimate to keep it, in the other forbidden. I discussed the problem with the brother until it became obvious that the decision must be speedy or the trout would succumb, and then decided to spare him. So he probably lives and thrives to this day, though I am still doubtful whether he did not gain his freedom on false pretenses. Below the roach swims are willows, which shelter some heavy chub. Under one of them, which leans across the stream, lives a great trout, and is said to live a phenomenal perch. The trout I have seen, but the perch, which Fable puts at four or five pounds, I have not seen nor am I very credulous with regard to him. His suggested size makes him improbable, and it is scarcely likely that he would live in amity under the same tree as the trout. Neither of them could eat the other, it is true, but they would certainly disagree on most matters, and one, probably the perch, would drive the other away. Leaving the willows, we come to a point where the river broadens out, and then divides, one channel running down to the mill and the other to the weir. In this broad water, as it is styled, are there pike. We boast ourselves second to none in the number of our pike. They weigh six ounces apiece, and we often make quite a large basket of them, for they will take anything that is presented to them, and are particularly fond of salmon flies. In the channel running to the mill, however, which is not much fished, as it is shallow and weedy, there are a few larger ones. Current report weighs a solitary veteran for us at sixteen or seventeen pounds, but that is probably an exaggeration. Following the other channel, we soon find a deep, narrow reach bordered by ancient stumps. This is the abode of the perch and here rare baskets have occasionally been made in September and October, which are the best months for perch here. There is another huge trout somewhere in the neighbourhood of this hole. Very occasionally he is seen to feed. 
he ploughs the river like a torpedo boat, and the small fry leap out in shoals before him. But he is too ancient and cunning to take a fly, and he has never yet attacked a spinning bait, though he would probably do so if you could catch him on the feed. But he is provokingly irregular in his habits, and it is likely that he feeds at night. There is another monster, about a hundred yards lower down among the willows, who once took a roach-bait and destroyed most of the angler's tackle. He, too, is very rarely seen to feed. This clump of willows, where the river turns a corner, is a favourite place for chub, which grows to a large size and are proportionally cautious. The heaviest of them hardly ever rise to a fly, but occasionally they bite well in the winter at cheese or lobworms. Some distance below the willows is the other shallow. There are usually one or two good trout here, as well as a plentiful supply of dace. After this the river turns two abrupt corners, and then keeps a straight course for the weir. The weir pool and the two hundred yards of stream below it are really the most fascinating piece of the fishery. Seated on the wall by the rush of water, you could easily imagine yourself buried in the country, miles from even a market town. The mill-house is the only building within sight, and its somewhat bold squareness of outline is veiled by fine old apple-trees that surround it. Everywhere else is the scenery of rural England, as this generation knows it, mile on mile of grassland dotted with oaks and elm rising to faint blue hills in the distance. Sometimes I have longed for a field of golden corn on the other side of the stream, but golden corn is rapidly losing its honoured place in the Englishman's scheme of things, and in many a district where the harvest song once resounded, it is heard no more. And the nation's cheap bread is made of bone dust or some such nourishing material. The progress of civilization, which has modified so many of our great thoughts, has had its effect on the proverb, too. We knew of old the dubious character of much that glittered. Now we are learning that not all that is golden is gold, or even to be bartered for. There are compensations, though. Long grass is sufficient of a nuisance when one is fly-fishing. Corn, which is taller, would vex the brotherhood still more. But to return to the weir-pool. It is not very large or very deep, but it contains a few ancient trout, as well as the perch and coarse-fish, and these trout have, until quite recently, been a source of displeasure to the fraternity. They flatly refuse to be caught, whether by fly, live-bait, or spinning, saving two only, and one of these being captured in the winter by a pike-fisher had to be returned. Therefore the matter was taken into earnest consideration, with the result that the general feeling found voice in what practically amounted to a vote of censure on the inhabitants of the pool, without definitely calling for their destruction. If, so approximately ran the expression of opinion, a trout shall be taken by a brother who is bait-fishing, it may be retained. 
There was a proviso as to the size of the fish, but it was not so strict as to hold out any hope for the veterans of the pool, should they be unwise enough to take the bait intended for barbel or bream, for which fish the fraternity in general, and two brothers in particular, at once began to display an unsuspected yearning. Before long it became a recognised thing for these two brethren to sit, one on each side of the weir, each holding his ledger-rod, and regarding the troubled waters with a hopeful expression, and waiting for the barbel and bream to begin to bite. For barbel and bream, the common earthworm in its largest size is as good a bait as you shall find, and doubtless their patience would have been rewarded had barbel and bream existed in the pool in any quantity. But of barbel and bream there is no considerable store there. Indeed, only one of each kind has been taken, I believe, during several years. Nevertheless, the patience of the two anglers was not exhausted, and one day one brother was aroused by a shout from the other. Raising his eyes, he plainly perceived that his friend was fast into something heavy and vigorous, which was hurrying round the pool. Like a true sportsman, he hastened across the bridge with the landing net, and after some exciting minutes had the pleasure of lifting out not barbel or bream, but one of the veterans themselves. The fish was a noble specimen, weighing some ounces more than that five pounds which every honest angler hopes some day to achieve, and you may imagine the joy of the successful brother, who shook hands with himself, his friend, and the keeper, and generally failed to conceal the pride that was in him. Then, the first glow of triumph over, he remembered that his luncheon awaited him at an adjacent hostelry, and went off in a condition of great benevolence to consume it. The other brother returned to his rod, and ate meditative sandwiches with renewed hope. If one veteran had taken the earthworm intended for barbel and bream, why not another? For some time he angled on confidently. It seemed certain that he would have a bite in a minute, but somehow the bite came not, and an insidious doubt began to creep into his mind. Were there any veterans in his corner of the pool? If there were no veterans, he could not expect bites. He looked across at his friend's corner. The eddy there certainly had a better appearance than his own. What if all the veterans lived in it? To cut a long story of mental strife short, he decided that he would make a trial of the other corner while the absent brother feasted, and he accordingly removed himself, his rod, and his sandwiches, and became confident once more. Though confidence certainly aids success, it does not ensure it, and even in the new corner bites came not. It seemed, indeed, as if distance had lent enchantment to the view, and the doubt returned in even more insidious fashion. What if there were no more veterans left anywhere in the pool? This possibility was very discouraging, and he began idly to look about him. By his side was the bag containing the absent brother's earthworms. He took it up and inspected the contents. 
They were notable earthworms, finer and more considerable than his own. Still, idly, he abstracted one and considered it, and after a while it seemed to him that it would be as easy to place it on his hook as to return it to the bag. This he accordingly did, and then, having committed the earthworm to the deep, he began to meditate on other matters. He was aroused by two occurrences. One, the return of the successful angler. The other, an undoubted pull at his top joint. To this he gave his attention first, and, answering the pull, he found that he too had hooked a large fish, which behaved in much the same manner as the first veteran. The positions were now reversed, and the newly returned brother hurried to his assistance. Between them they eventually landed what was obviously another and even more important veteran. It weighed, in fact, over six pounds. Now it was the second brother who failed to conceal the pride that was in him, and there was more shaking of hands, and by the time I reached the spot the very atmosphere seemed to rejoice. The sun beamed more brightly, and the waters plashed more merrily. Yet I suspect, though I will no more than whisper it, that the first brother may have reflected somewhat ruefully on the insistence of human appetites. Had he not gone away for his luncheon, it is probable that both the veterans had fallen to his steel. Indeed, he said so, not grudgingly, as one who states a fact, and commented on the turn of fortune that had inspired his brother to fish in his corner and employ his earthworm. This fact disposed of, however, all was joy. Now I, as has been said, came up when the rejoicing was at its height, and rejoiced also for a space. But presently it seemed, to my unsuccessful mind, that these brothers were somewhat too fortunate. Nor did they seem disposed, like Polycrates, to make sacrifice against the evil chance, but rather spoke of glass cases, methods of preservation, and other pinnacles of achievement. Therefore I was reluctantly compelled to remind them that these veterans had been taken with the earthworm intended for barbel and bream, a circumstance which I for one should blush to record on a glass case. But they were full of argument. In the matter of Polycrates they pointed out that the cases were not parallel. Polycrates caught his fish after he had made his sacrifice. There was no precedent for making a sacrifice after catching the fish. Further, they explained that there would be no necessity for anything about earthworms to appear on the glass cases. In fact, such an idea had not entered their heads. Lastly, and most forcibly, they said that I was jealous, and that if I had not captured a veteran it had not been for lack of effort. Had they not seen me angling for barbel and bream in the self-same manner but a day or two before? In short, they reduced me to silence and shame. Below the weir pool is the hut, which, by the way, should have the honoured legend Piscatoribus Sacrum above its portal. It stands on piles right in the middle of the river, 
has a balcony running round it, and is connected with land by a wooden bridge. In the hut a layman might soon learn all the intimacies of the craft. Such talk would he hear concerning the habits of all fish that swim, and the ways of catching them. Such variety of tackling, of rods, of flies, spinning traces, floats, hooks, reels, and landing nets would he see, and he might note, if of philosophic habit, the subtle difference betwixt morning and evening. In the morning the Brotherhood is brisk and full of hope. It has a long day all its own. It snuffs the pure air, it fits together its rod with speed, care and worry are things unknown. But in the evening the Brotherhood lingers and dallies with regret. It has spent its long day, perhaps with inadequate result. It no longer snuffs the pure air, it breathes it in with slow sighs. It takes down its rod slowly, almost sadly. The shadow of London seems to be upon it once more, and so, still slowly, unless it absolutely has to catch a train, it crosses the bridge, passes along the river-bank, until it reaches the keeper's garden, bids him and his wife good-night at the cottage door, and proceeds thoughtfully on its way to the station in the gathering dusk. In the case of a fortunate brother who is accompanied by a veteran on his return journey, the melancholy subsequent on irrevocable delights is no doubt sensibly lessened, if not altogether removed. And even for the less successful, there is always the consolation of knowing that next Saturday is but a week hence. The End End of chapter 14 and End of An Angler's Hours by Hugh Tempest Sheringham Read by Adrian Pretzelis in Santa Rosa, California, May 2022